Today, my conversation is with a man who's serving a 50-year sentence under the Illinois Accountability Law. Now, I have a few stories coming up from others who are also serving under accountability, but we'll let them tell their own stories in their own episodes. Today, I want to give you a little bit of background about what the accountability law is, and I'm going to read to you from restorejustice.org because they have some great information there that you can find as well by just going to their website. The law of accountability is a legal mechanism the state uses to convict people of crimes with which they were associated but did not commit. Accountability is not the definition of a criminal offense, but rather is applied to people who were accessories or passive participants in a crime. Specifically, the law of accountability states that a person is legally responsible for another person's illegal conduct if either before or during the commission of an offense, and with the intent to promote or facilitate that commission, he or she solicits, aids, abets, agrees, or attempts to aid that other person in the planning or commission of the offense. In cases where the law of accountability has been challenged, Illinois courts have held that to prove a defendant possessed the intent to promote or facilitate the crime, evidence may be presented that 1. The defendant shared the criminal intent of the person who actually committed the crime, or 2. There was a common criminal design or plan. The second holding has become known as the common design rule. Under the common design rule, if two or more people engage in or agree to engage in a criminal act together, any additional criminal acts committed by one person are considered to be the acts of all persons. Everyone is held equally responsible for the consequences of further acts. Youthful offenders are more likely to act in groups or co-defend and are more susceptible to peer pressure. They are thus disproportionately affected by the law of accountability. The U.S. Supreme Court established that children lack maturity and have an underdeveloped sense of responsibility that makes them more reckless, impulsive, and risk-prone than adults, and that they are also more susceptible to rehabilitation. But when convicted under a theory of accountability, children are often branded violent offenders for life and are subject to the same sentencing range as the person who actually committed the violent act. This is true even if they did not inflict any harm or commit any acts of violence. Young people convicted of murder under the law of accountability usually receive life, de facto life, or other extreme sentences. Now, the man I'm talking to today was still a teenager when this crime was committed, and he speaks a little about that common design rule, so I wanted to touch on that and give you some background on what that means. Uh, But let's go ahead and hear it in his words. And as always, we're talking to this man in prison using prison phones, and the quality of those phones is not great, but it's all we have. Any attempt to add a third party to any call from Illinois DOC will result in inmate disciplinary action, and the involved end user's phone number will be globally blocked from future calls from all Illinois DOC facilities. Thank you for using Securus. You may start the conversation now. And we just hung out at, you know, my friend's girlfriend's house for a couple hours. We were drinking. Uh, These other two guys that were with us, they kind of started getting loud, and her mom told us, you know, they had to leave basically. So we went to go walk. Uh, my younger uh, co defendant, he was 16 at the time. We walked him home on the way.
stop at uh, somebody else's house uh, that owed one of my, the other guy's money, the other co-defendant money. The guy didn't answer the door or whatever. Um, anyway, they start breaking into the cars, doing just random, just vandalism as they were, you know, walking along. And so somebody came out and we kind of ran and split up. One guy left, and we finished walking by juvenile rapi uh, to his house. During the course of this is when they kind of brought up the fact that they wanted to break into the house, I guess, on his street. Uh, and they kind of explained it to me, well, kind of what they wanted to do. I, and at the time, I, I really didn't care. I was just kind of mad and frustrated and I had other things that I had planned on doing. I was going to go hang out with this girl and uh, I really didn't care what they did. I just wanted them to hurry up and so we could just, you know, go on with our night. Did they choose that house at random? No, they, well, see, I didn't know this at the time. Uh, I thought this was just something that they thought of, but later on throughout the case, I ended up learning that they had asked another friend or another kid, I guess that lives a couple blocks away, if he was willing to, I guess, help them break into this house. And he told them no. Uh, and he mentioned, hey, why don't you ask, you know, that other guy that I see you with, but he didn't know my name or didn't know me or anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, so some weeks went by and then that night occurred and, and that's when they brought it up to me and, it went from them just talking about it and kind of planning it to, uh, you know, me being more involved. And we knocked on the door and nobody answered after about 15 minutes, but we assumed nobody was home. Uh, the younger, uh, Rappy, he lived on the same street, like five houses from the victim. And, uh, I guess he said that he seen the person leave or whatever. And, uh, and that's just what we assumed. And we went to the back of the house and tried to break in, you know, a window. It ended up being a garage. Uh, and it had no entrance to this house. So we ended up having to break into a different window. Uh, and it happened to be a small bathroom window in the back of the house, which they lifted me up and put me in the house. And I unlocked the door and, you know, let my... My older Rappy, the 17-year-old, I was the oldest, I was 80. Uh, I let him in the house, and I just stayed in the backyard, you know, as planned, as, you know, a lookout, basically. And the younger one was supposed to be in the front as a lookout. And at this point, you still didn't know anyone was in the house? No, we still didn't know anybody was in the home. Okay. And about 45 minutes goes by, and I go to the front of the house to look for the younger of my friends, I didn't see him. So I looked around, I looked down by his house, and he was sitting on the front porch. So I go down there, and I asked him what he was doing. I was like, man, you know, why hasn't he came back out yet? And they led me to believe that there was, like, a safe in this house. And that's basically what they were there. That was their, like, target. That's what they were trying to steal, was a safe. Uh, And so we walked back to this house and we lightly knock on the door and 
yelled for, you know, the other guy to come out. And he came to the door, and he seemed a little off. And he said he'll be back out in a minute. And at this time, he had turned a bunch of lights on in the house. And uh, so he comes back out, and he kind of looks like he was in there doing drugs, like he was high on cocaine or something. Uh, and I, I was like, okay, so are you, are you okay? I mean, did you find the safe or whatever? Do you need help or what? And he was like, no. He was like, and that's when he tells us that, hey, there was somebody in there. I think they're dead. And the, like the minute that he kind of told me that, my mind just kind of like, kind of panicked. You know, mm-hmm. I didn't really, you know, I didn't think any, I didn't think any like thing like that would happen. And so I told him, well, let's go in there and, and, and let's see if they're actually dead. I'm going to try to find a pulse. And if they're not, then, you know, we need to call, we need to call help for, for this person. And so that's what I did. But by this time, you know, I had already drank over a fifth vodka by myself. And at the time I was only 103 pounds when I got arrested. I did try to check for a pulse and I couldn't find one. Mm-hmm. And then I, I just tried to observe them to see if I could see them breathing, see their chest rise and fall, which, you know, I couldn't really tell that probably because I was not standing still because I was under the influence. Sure. And so I just assumed that they were dead as he had said. And so I asked him, you know, what he touched in there. We wiped down fingerprints and stuff like that. Then we left and, and kind of came up with a plan of what we were going to do. And uh, he ended up stealing a bunch of jewelry and stuff, and there was no safe. So fast forward, the guys have been arrested. The police go to the hospital to interview the victim. Do you know who did this to you? And the victim, you know, stated, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, he lives right here on the corner house. He's grew up here. He's been in my house before. He came over and mowed my grass. You know, yeah, I know him. It was him. Which, you know, that's my that's my juvenile co-defendant. You know, they asked me all these questions basically about the incident and basically to start from the beginning. And, and I, I told them everything that I knew. And I, I accepted responsibility for, for my role in it. You know, I told them, yes, we planned this crime. They, well, they, you know, they asked me to do, you know, I, I went in this window and I unlocked the door and let it in there. You have one minute left. But I didn't know what he did because I wasn't in there. I couldn't tell them that. So these calls are limited to 20 minutes. Uh, you get that one minute warning, as you heard, and the call will end. So when that happens, I wait for the person to call back and I stitch those together. Uh, in this case, it took a week between phone calls, um, but after the first call, really, I just sat for a, for a few minutes and just breathed um, because that story was difficult. There was so much trauma involved, so much trauma for the victim and also so much trauma for these kids. I mean, these were 18, 17-year-old kids and younger, I think, as well. Um, And this guy put himself in a very stupid situation, made a stupid decision, and had no idea this was going to be the outcome. Um, But it was. This was hard for me to hear. So 
I guess that's why I'm pausing here for a moment, just in case it was it was tough for you to listen to. Um, just kind of taking a moment to breathe. So in this first part, he told us about what led up to the arrest. Um, and when he calls back, he talks about the sentence and where he is now. And that's when we get into the accountability law, uh, because he did not go there to harm someone. Uh, and I thought it was so respectful of him, uh, not to say he or she or what happened to the victim, but instead just to say the words victim and was harmed. I thought that was very respectful. Um, but this, this person was harmed and he did not know they were even in the house. He was standing outside as the lookout for a robbery. And this other person comes out and says, someone was in there. I think they're dead. Uh, the victim did not die, fortunately. Um, but it was incredibly traumatic for the victim nonetheless. So now we're going to hear about what happened in sentencing. We were also charged with you know, residential and aggravated battery. And, uh, and he ends up testifying against my juvenile co-defendant. And he's the only one that actually went to trial. Uh, he was found guilty. They gave him an indeterminate sentence. Uh, and he ended up only serving nine months. And then he was paroled. They offered me an open plea deal. Uh, asking me to plead guilty to attempted murder and a home invasion. And they sent me out something called a bench trial. And Brant basically said... You know, if you want to take a, a bench trial, then this is basically the evidence that they have against me, and this is basically how it's going to work. And basically a summary or a theory that the state had of the, you know, events of the night. And so basically they read something called the common design was in there at, at the end of it. And that's the first time I ever heard about common design. And basically what it said is as long as one person can be proven guilty, uh, all other parties are equally responsible for any crimes that happen during the commission or, you know, the planning of any one crime. And that's the accountability law. Yeah, that's a broader term of accountability. Mm -hmm. And so once I read that, I was like, well, there's really no way I could even beat this at trial, even though I know it's not attempted murder and, not, you know, I didn't harm this person. Uh, I know I'm guilty, you know, by accessory, but at the same time, I didn't think that, you know, I would have got the sense that I ended up getting. And, uh, so really I didn't have any really options to try to defend myself. And so I ended up taking the open plea deal. I tried to get them to give me a set number, but they wouldn't do it. I tried to get 20 years. They wouldn't agree to it. They just either said, take the open plea deal or you know, you go to trial. And uh, so I, I plead underneath uh, their theory that, you know, I, I plead as an accessory. And uh, and then they set me a date for sentencing. And then, then at my sentencing hearing, basically they changed their theory that they said that they had a new theory that says that I'm the principal in, in my case. And Basically, they had no evidence to actually prove their theory. I mean, 
we the victim ID, you know, my co-defendant knew my co-defendant, and the victim they never put me in a lineup or anything like that. Uh, so it's not like they the victim ID me or even ever. Uh, and they were also the the perpetrator was described by the victim as somebody that was husky, <laughs> and at the time I was only 103 pounds. I was the smallest of all three of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so basically, yeah, the judge allowed them to basically change their theory and then he sent me as the principal. And then uh, they came in and my lawyer, you know, he submitted the mitigating factors in the case, you know. They ended up sentencing me to two 25-year terms that were, you know, ran consecutively. Did you say two 25-year? Uh, 25 years. Yeah. I got 25 years for the home evasion and then 25 years for the home, uh, for the attempted murder. So I got to do a total of 42 and a half out of the 50 because both of them are at 85%. So that's episode one of accountability. I hope this episode made you think, and I hope it started conversations for you with others. If you liked the episode, please hit like and follow. Consider supporting the show. If you know someone who's incarcerated who would like a conversation, or if you'd like to reach out with questions or comments even about the episode, you can reach out to prisonconversations at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.